Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. Clive's away on holiday, so you're listening to me, Andrew Jack. This week we have a very exciting show for you. We're broadcasting live from Vienna at the International AIDS Society's biannual conference. And in the background you can hear the bustle of something like 25,000 delegates, scientists, activists, policymakers, officials, who are all coming together to discuss the virus. In the show, we'll be discussing the research released this week, the breakthroughs in treatment and prevention of the HIV virus, challenges of funding on what more is required to tackle the epidemic, a virus that infects still more than 2.7 million people every year. And Science Magazine is back this week with a contribution all about social corporate responsibility. It's a great pleasure to be joined today by Stefano Bertozzi, who's head of HIV at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is a big funder of HIV and other global health programs. We also have Ambassador Eric Goosby, who's the Global Health Coordinator at the U.S. State Department and responsible for PEPFAR, the U.S. program dealing with AIDS relief around the world. We also have Lydia Mungorera, a Ugandan doctor and advocate who herself is HIV positive, And we hope shortly to be joined also by Tony Fauci, head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health. Stefano, you're a veteran of these big international AIDS conferences that happen every two years. How does the mood feel at this one compared to those in the past? I think it's a mix of concern and rejoicing in some positive results on the prevention front. The concern and and borderline anger in some places has to do with the the fact that the funding levels for HIV have flatlined and people are concerned about the ability to continue to enroll people in treatment and to expand prevention programs. The optimism and, and rejoicing is about the fact that this year, the last 12 months, has had more good news about HIV prevention than we've had in a very long time. We, there's new hope in the vaccine front, there's new hope now in the microbicide front, giving women a tool to protect themselves. And I think that that is leading to a lot of optimism. And Eric, it's sort of ironic, it seems to me, we've had a huge increase, of course, in the past few years, particularly from the US in terms of funding to HIV programs around the world. We've seen some very positive moves most recently in terms of lifting of the HIV travel ban into the US, moves towards more positive um, gestures on funding for harm reduction and so on. And yet, on the other hand, the US administration here is getting a lot of stick from advocates, isn't it, about a reduction or at least a flatlining of funding just at the time when there was this huge momentum growing. How do you feel about that? Is it justified? Well, I feel that it's understandable that those who are in the activist community are pushing everyone for more resources. But it's not 
justified in the sense of the United States is putting out an effort that they have taken a leadership role on really since the beginning of the epidemic in defining and identifying models of care that are effective, uh, that demonstrate and respond to the needs of the population that are most impacted by the disease. The resources have gone up each year. They haven't gone up as much any of us would like, including the administration, but they have gone up. Indeed, right now in every country that we're involved in, we are anywhere from 70 to 90 percent of the HIV AIDS response in the country in terms of the costs of. Now that's in partnership with each of the countries that we're in, both human resources, bricks and mortar, we're often in the clinics and hospitals of the country. Uh, the countries continue to pay salaries, continue to pay for maintenance, etc. But we have seen too often uh, many of the countries drop their funding as we infuse our funding. So we are looking to this next period where we are going to be much more clear about our expectation and hope that the countries that we're partnered with will continue to maintain funding levels where they started and indeed increase them as they can. We have no misconceptions about the United States' disproportionate obligation to put more resources on the table because the country is rich, it has that ability, and that ability in and of itself raises an ethical obligation to respond. Uh, we cannot ignore it. I believe the Obama administration sees and accepts that responsibility, and as resources are available, as the economy returns, as unmet needs uh, continue to be what they are, the United States will continue to increase its contribution. Lydia, your base in Uganda on the front line of the HIV epidemic. Do you want to say just briefly how you became involved in this in the first place and how you've seen the change on the ground in the past few years in terms of support and access to treatment? I was working in a country which is not Uganda in the 1990s and uh, my husband died from um, disseminated TB in 1992 and in 1996 I was tested for HIV and I tested HIV positive and in 1997 I was on my deathbed and I came back to Uganda and I started antiretroviral therapy in 1998. I steadily recovered in, in my country where there was at that time where there was less discrimination than most of the other African and other countries and I joined the movement of people who live with HIV AIDS and I became a treatment activist and um, I've been an activist since, since, since then. And if you look now in the last few months on the front line, international funding crisis, some donors seem to be slowing down the momentum of growth. How much do you experience that? Is there a challenge of giving medicines to those who need it, who are coming forward well, now? Um, the whole thing is that the donors are very many. I mean, the Global Fund to Fight TB, HIV and Malaria has been one of the, one of the big donors in our country. PEPFA, of course, has been one of the, the big, big donors. And the PEPFA programs have been very excellent. And if you ask me to, to grade, I'd say which is the best program that has ever happened in Uganda, I think the PEPFA program has been excellent. People who are actually in treatment centers who are saying that you know, they've been told not to recruit new, pa new patients, that, that caused, of course, worry for us. In our treatment sites in my, back in my country, many people do have stockouts already. And this not, I'm not blaming this on any one donor, but we have stockouts and people who actually are supposed to be on treatment actually not getting the treatment they need. And we can't recruit new patients in some sites. 
and that's what's happening. And this happened in the last few months. So this is what's worrying us as treatment activists. And so what, what does need to be done on the ground then? You know, 80% of funding to Uganda is donor funding, and that's, that's the same in many other African countries. And we believe that the donors have done very well in the past in getting us, giving us this money to fund. What needs to be done is that our own countries, to begin with, need to put in funding. 15% that was promised in the Abuja declaration needs to, be, needs to happen, coming from our African governments. That's number one, which needs to be done. Secondly, we believe that um, the promises which were made to, our, to Africa, we're going to give this amount of funding for treatment, needs, we feel that those promises need to be held. And I think that needs to be done. And we need to have funding increased. For, we, we continue to test people, and those people need to be, need to be treated. I can't say much more than, than that, really. We've now also been joined by uh, Tony Fauci, who's the head of the National Institute of uh, Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health in the US. Welcome, Tony. Good to be here. We've heard about the funding tensions, at least, on the ground in terms of treatment and prevention. Are you also feeling the pinch in terms of support and funding for more fundamental research into HIV? Well, the answer is that there are constraints on resources all over. I don't think that I, I think anyone that denies that reality is not really looking at what is going on. Uh, we have a, a, a substantial amount of support at the NIH, and I think you have to distinguish the amount of support you have and have had in the past versus what the increase is that you usually get when times are less constrained financially. Let me give you an example. The budget of the National Institutes of Health is $31 billion. We do basic and clinical research on a number of diseases. 10.5%, almost 11% of that entire budget is for HIV AIDS research. The NIH has spent, since the beginning, about $42 billion on HIV. So we, we spend about $3 billion a year on HIV. So this is something that we've got to make sure we don't lose sight of the fact that there's a, 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 you know, a significant amount. Yet, if you look at the last several years, the budget for the NIH has been essentially flat with just inflationary increases because of the constraints on resources. So could we use more? Well, you never ask a researcher, can you use more money? Because science is knowledge and knowledge is infinite. So you could always do more, do more science. But $3.1 billion a year is a lot of money. Uh, I would love to see increases in the NIH budget and increases in, in uh, HIV AIDS. But given the constraints on resources, we're pleased that we get as much money as we possibly can. Let's talk a little bit about the, the science out right. of this conference. Right. What have you seen as the most exciting and interesting announcements this week? Well, obviously the Caprisa announcement that uh, was supposed to be today but turned out to be yesterday, I think is, is a very exciting phenomenon. Just remind people what that yeah. actually says. Well, the Caprisa is a study that was done in South Africa in which there was a comparison of a microbicidal gel that was a placebo with a microbicidal gel that was uh, spiked, as it were, with a 1% tenofovir, which is a antiretroviral drug that has been successfully used as an oral drug in other circumstances, mother-to-child transmission or as part of regimens. And the important news is it is the first time 
despite years of clinical trials with a variety of microbicides, that we've actually seen an unequivocally significant positive result in acquisition. And the result was 50% protection at 12 months and 39% protection at 30 months. Now, we need to do better than that, but that in and of itself is a very important uh, proof of concept that we now can show that women can be empowered by using a particular modality of prevention to be able to take into their own hands without the uh, approval or even knowledge of their male sexual partner to be able to have a modality of prevention at their disposal. Stefano, any thoughts? Are you excited by this microbicide? Does it herald a new era in prevention with new techniques? Absolutely. We're, we're enormously excited by it. I mean, before the conference, there was already very encouraging news of new developments in the vaccine field. And here at the conference, we've learned about microbicides. The foundation has been investing for years in microbicide research. And this is the first trial that's reporting on a microbicide that contains, as Tony said, an antiretroviral drug in the microbicide. So we really think that this is a fabulous development. And our investment priority now is looking at the next generation that Tony was alluding to. And in particular, at ways that you could have microbicides that are slow release where you could have a vaginal ring, for example, where you would have slow release over a month or more, and that would get at some of the adherence issues that Tony was mentioning that threatened the effectiveness of this particular product. Yeah. Another thing that's come out of this conference very much, it was the message of Bill Gates, was this idea of making limited resources work harder. What do you see as the key things where there could be potential savings in tackling the epidemic going forwards? Well, you know, like like uh, in anything else, go where the money is, right? So the largest expenditures in HIV are clearly in treatment. And so the first place to look for potential efficiencies are in the realm of treatment. And we can think about a whole series of ways to look for greater efficiencies. The first would be in making sure that a higher proportion of funds that are allocated to HIV actually get to the programs in the countries and as little as possible is used in overheads along this, the way from the generous governments to the recipient programs. And with resources as tight as they are now, every dollar that we spend unnecessarily are people that we are not able to treat. So it's our, it's our obligation as public health professionals, it's our ob moral obligation to make sure that we use those dollars as efficiently as possible. I reckon from PEPFAR's perspective, can you deliver more with less? Yes, uh, we can. I would just uh, kind of violently agree with uh, what both uh, Tony and Steph have said there. It's uh, an opportunity for us to truly look internal to our programs and make sure that we've taken every advantage of cost savings uh, throughout the care, treatment, prevention uh, continuum. Those savings are not uh, often obvious, but are always there. And we have already started this process in a number of uh, our larger countries and have been gratified to see that there are truly significant amounts of resources that we've identified and been able to fold right back into the same country program. So as a temporizing uh, practice, it makes sense, but it's also the right thing to do always with the dollar, the value for the dollar. Uh, I'm gratified that we are going to have some real gains by this process, so I would completely agree. Lydia, what's your sense, though, on the ground? Maybe because I took treatment and I'm alive, and people need treatment to keep alive. I mean, all the other things that are very important which follow treatment are all there when somebody is alive. And I believe that 
somebody being alive is the most critical thing because I'm alive today to talk to you. So I repeat that. I can't, I can't take anything, anything, anything more important than somebody going to collect a set of antiretroviral drugs, taking them in their home and swallowing them to keep alive. Well, thank you all very much, everyone, for taking part. A great uh, discussion. Now to Science Magazine and Social Corporate Responsibility. Stuart Wills is stepping in for Robert Friedrich this week. So over to you, Stuart. Thanks, Clive. We're all familiar with programs of corporate social responsibility. Think fair trade coffee at your local coffee bar or a merchant donating a percentage of sales to a charity. But can such corporate altruism programs be set up so that they profit the company as well as the charity? That's a question explored in a recent paper in Science, which took the research to an unusual setting. Well, what we did in order to find this out, we went to a large U.S. theme park. Ayelet Gnizi of the University of California, San Diego, is the study's lead author. And we were looking for a product in which marginal costs are relatively very low. The experiment focused on a business selling souvenir photos at a theme park roller coaster ride. Two pricing models were set up. Some customers were offered the photo for a fixed price of $12.95, and others could name their own price for the photo. To get at the impact of corporate charity, about half of the customers in each pricing group were told that 50% of the sale would go to a nationally recognized charity. For the fixed price model, whether or not there was a charitable contribution didn't significantly change consumer behavior. But things got a lot more interesting in the pay-what-you-want group. Without an accompanying charitable contribution... Pay what you want. It not benefit the company in any way in terms of profits. The price at the end of the day converged to the real cost of the product. In other words, very low price and zero profit. Even though the name-your-own-price scheme substantially increased the number of photos sold relative to the fixed-price scheme. But coupling pay-what-you-want with a charitable contribution changed the picture dramatically. Even though the average price paid by this group was still less than half of that paid by the fixed-price group, the profit per photo to the company was almost three times higher, because many, many more people actually purchased the photos. It also, of course, far outran the zero-profit performance of the program in which customers could pay what they wanted without the charity component. And Ganesi says that the people in the pay-what-you-want-plus-charity group showed a very different attitude from those who named their own price without a portion going to charity. People really took this seriously, you know, as seriously as you can get in a theme park, but they really thought about it. It wasn't just, okay, let's get the best deal. So they really cared for the cause, and they really wanted at the same time to get some kind of a good deal for the photo, and the average of the 533 per photo was the, the compromise for that. That compromise between consumer and company, say Ganesi and her colleagues on the study, may point to a very different approach to corporate altruism, which they call shared social responsibility. In much the same way that companies are increasingly reaching out to customers for input on product design and marketing, they can form similar partnerships to benefit charity at a price that works for both parties. If the company is determined about doing something good for a certain cause, and if the firm is inviting its customers to take part in that doing, then it should allow consumers to decide what extent they actually would like to do that. Of course, the study also raises many questions, one of which is whether this consumer behavior stems from true charitable concern or something else. Here's Stefano De La Vigna, an economist at the University of California, Berkeley, who's not affiliated with the study. 
interesting question is, do consumers give more when there is a charity destination of the money because they care more? They really feel like, oh, it's a great thing. The money gives to charity. I feel better about this company. Or is it that it's about social pressure? So now all of a sudden they feel, my goodness, if I do not buy that photo, I'm going to look really bad. The distinction is crucial, says De La Vigna, because if the consumer feels compelled to buy the photo because of social pressure, it could actually lead to negative feelings about the program. Flipping things around, the consumer's trust of the company's good intentions in these charitable schemes also plays a big role. Again, study author Ayelet Ganesi. If I don't trust a company and they tell me, you know, you pay whatever you want and I'll donate a percentage of that to charity, I may not trust the company to actually do that. It also remains to be seen whether the shared social responsibility approach, which worked so well in a souvenir photo operation in an amusement park, could apply as well to businesses with higher marginal costs. But whatever the question still to be answered, De La Vigna notes that the paper is an example of a growing line of research in economics, one that combines the techniques of controlled laboratory experiment with the real-world perspective possible in an economic field study. He says it's a promising line of research as economists seek to provide real-world value through their science. One of the things that economists are really working on these days is getting in touch with firms and helping them design more creative and novel ways that hopefully could benefit both the consumers and the companies, and in this case, the charities. For Science Magazine, I'm Stuart Wills. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Thanks very much, Stuart. That's all we have time for this week, but Clive will be back again next week. So Tony, Eric, Stefano, Lydia, thanks very much for your contributions. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Andrew Jack in Vienna. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.